spicy souvlaki. Octopus tenderized within splashing distance. Motorbike rides to romantic sunsets, fragrant time-past monasteries, and piles of ancient wonder. Greece holds plenty of thrills, and those with a little background enjoy it most. Remember, all that ancient rubble can give you heat stroke, or it can give you goosebumps, depending upon how you're able to understand it. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and on this edition of Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting an insider's perspective on Greece. Greece must be the most visited yet least explored country in all of Europe. At any given point, it seems 90% of its many tourists are packed into a handful of famous destinations, complaining about the crowds. But getting away from it all is very simple. Just find a no-name village with no postcards and no hotels and stay in a domatio, the local B&B. Then, challenge a local to a game of backgammon in a sleepy taverna and you're surrounded by new friends. We're talking Greece on this week's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. The golden mean says to do nothing in excess. But when you visit Greece, the homeland of this philosophy, it's difficult not to overindulge in great food, conversation, sunshine, and that distinctive culture whose proud heritage is the foundation of our modern civilization. We're getting an insider's perspective on visiting Greece, coming up shortly on this week's Travel with Rick Steves. But first, let's take some calls at 877-333-RICK to see what's on your mind and where you're traveling. That's 877-333-7425. Julie on the line from Bothell, Washington. Hi, Julie. Hi. Thanks for calling. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I have a question about um, travel to Egypt. I've been thinking about taking my nine-year-old daughter um, to Egypt, just the two of us, because she's really crazy about everything Egyptian, and we've been to Europe several times, so I thought, well, let's branch out and do something a little different this time. But everyone I mention it to kind of looks like I've lost my mind, and, you know, do you really want to travel alone in Egypt with a, a daughter? I mean, you know, a young child, and... Um, fear of terrorism, those sorts of things. And so I've kind of taken a step back, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, I don't believe in letting fear of terrorism or things like that dictate my travel plans, but at the same time I'm trying to figure out when, you know, how do you evaluate whether it's safe to take um, a trip to certain parts of the world, and especially when your child's involved, you know, I still feel the responsibility of making a good decision for her, so... That's a difficult, um, I think it's a difficult decision to make in, in some cases. But one thing you do not want to do is take the advice of people who know nothing about it, who've never been there, who just have been watching the evening news for 30 years and, and uh, don't really have much of a sense of uh, what are the risks. Um, I would say when terrorists are targeting tourists, I pay attention. You know, um, terrorism is very localized. I mean, let's say we're planning a trip to Italy next year and there's a bomb at the embassy in Rome. Well, that means there is a bomb at the embassy in Rome. Does that mean it's dangerous to go to uh, Rome next week? No, it doesn't. I mean, some people would say yes, but I would say there was a bomb at the embassy. It doesn't mean Rome, a city of many million people, is suddenly dangerous. Uh, If all of a sudden some uh, fundamentalist, uh, fanatic uh, Muslim group is machine-gunning tour buses on the Nile River, now I pay attention because there is a terrorist group that wants to ruin a country's economy by scaring away its tourists. I'm surprised there's not more terrorist groups realizing that they can mess up a country's economy by um, targeting tourists because uh, it's a very easy thing to destroy a tourist industry just by shooting up a few tour buses or something like this, but it really hasn't happened. It hasn't. It certainly has not happened with any sort of uh, um, consistency or doggedness. Um, there's been a few cases over the last couple decades where where uh, tourists have been uh, targeted and caught up in terrorist events, but generally tourists are not targeted, and if they're not targeted, I would be inclined to go to a place. Is it safe? Is it comfortable? Well, that's everybody's call. Um, I think Egypt is a pretty gamey place to go. Uh, when you get there, it's uh, it can be overwhelming. I remember last time I went to Egypt, I was meeting my film crew. They got there a day ahead of me, and I just when I landed at the airport and I and I tumbled into town with in a rickety old taxi with cars that stay in their lanes like rocks in an avalanche. 
I just was laughing. I was laughing out loud at what a wild experience this is. I got off of the taxi, and I'm walking by all these guys sucking on their hubbly-bubbly pipes, those shishas, and, and all their glassy eyes, and their flowing robes, and the animals in the streets, and the noise, and, and uh, millions of people packed into a relatively small space. And, and I just thought, this is wild. And I wondered, uh, you know, what was in store for us. And I was very glad to get to my hotel, which provided a comfortable refuge. And after a day in, in Cairo, it became much less uh, exotic and much more reasonable. And we set about producing a wonderful TV show, having such a great time. I started dreaming about taking groups there. Um, you know, it's a, it's an exciting thing to think that a mother and a daughter could experience a place as exotic and, and thriving and and just uh, fascinating as Egypt. It would change your daughter's outlook on the world for the rest of her school days, that's for sure, and that would be a huge gift that you would give her. Uh, is it safe? Uh, I don't know. Are there uh, uh, State Department travel advisories out against traveling in Egypt? Do you know? There are not. I've looked. There are no specific, um, you know, warnings. They do talk about some of the recent attacks, and they have targeted, um, to- they do seem to be targeting the tourism um, industry if they're targeting anything at all. And, and there have been a few attacks, but there are few and far between, and, you know, there are millions of tourists who visit Egypt every sure. year. So I think, well, you know, and, I mean, um, when you read the travel advisories for any country, there's some scary things in there, and, and if I, you know, I figure if I read those before, I, I probably wouldn't go anywhere. Wouldn't go anywhere. But um, on the other hand, this year in our country, 15,000 people have been killed um, on the streets by guns. 6,000 right, people have been killed in workplaces by guns this last year. 7,000 children have been killed by guns in the last year. 50,000 Americans have died on the streets because of car accidents in the last year. Um, you know, life is dangerous if you want to really dwell on that kind of stuff. And also, life is short, and this world's a beautiful place to explore. And if you've got a chance to go with your daughter to Egypt, wow. Um, well, that's it's, my thinking. I mean, it sounds fabulous to me, and we're very excited about going. But, uh, you know, like I said, I just thought, well, I don't want to be crazy either and, and, and yeah. ignore. The more I read, I th- you know, I kind of just ignore it and think, oh, you know, that anywhere's dangerous. You know, I, I take that attitude. But yeah. I thought, well, there comes a point when... It isn't, you know, I, I'm not taking my next vacation in Afghanistan. You know, no, I mean, well, I wouldn't go to much decide. of the Middle East. I wouldn't go to much of the Middle East just because I wouldn't be comfortable, um, you know, a, a white American walking the streets of um, Syria or something Egypt like that. seems like a place that it would be comfortable. But, but Egypt, I would be comfortable. Yeah. Uh, to me, Egypt is sort of in the category of Morocco. Yeah. It's just my personal take on it. And, um, you know, but Egypt is a place that is exotic and scary. I remember the first time I was flying into Egypt, uh, there were so many scare stories rattling around in my head. I heard it was ho- I heard, I heard it was so hot that the tires were melting to the streets. <laughs> I heard that the, the beggars were just so intense, they would crawl all over you like Jesus with those lepers, you know. Mm-hmm. And I heard that there was no maps available anywhere, so everybody would just not know where to go. It, I mean, it was like a spooky place to travel. And I got there, and it was one of my favorite places ever. So yeah, it does sound very exotic. Well, can I ask a quick follow-up question? I, I'm tourist uh, tour groups. It is not the way I would normally travel, but because because it is a bit exotic, and that I am a bit nervous on a woman traveling in a you know a conservative country that's different from anything I've used to. I'm trying to decide whether to use a tour group or not. And if I do, I have no idea how to even approach something like that. Um, you you guys don't have a tour group that goes to Egypt. So no, how, do you, Egypt. how do you find, you know, well, you would want to, on the Internet? Or? There's a lot of tourism in the developing world is garish tourism. It is so filled with cliches and tackiness. Yeah, and, and You yeah. know, they're going to be um, snake charmers dancing the hora, and they don't even know what culture they're supposed to be, but all the tourists are taking photographs and clapping and doing the limbo, you know. Right. It's, a, it's a nightmare of this sort of clichetic stuff that has no meaning to the culture. Yeah, we just don't want that at all. And, so. and it's, it's just an ugly scene. On the other hand, there are excellent tours to these uh, countries that really merit having a local guide. One way or another, you should have a local guide, whether you go there and you want to hire a guide or if, whether you take a tour. I would say um, find a smaller tour company which would let you read the surveys from their uh, participants in the last couple of years and see how the people have uh, enjoyed or not enjoyed their time with that group. I think that's pretty uh, pretty reasonable to expect a tour company to let the, to share their feedback, and that's pretty uh, frank and candid opinions from people who trusted them with their vacation time and money and see how their experience was. But to find the right tour company for Egypt would uh, just be great. I think Egypt is uh, very exciting that way. Mm-hmm. All right, Julie, well, thank you for your call. I'm forward to it. Thank you very much. Yeah, happy travels now. we got Helen in Spokane. Helen, hi, how are you doing? I'm fine, how are you? Great, thanks for waiting and thanks for your call. I remember um, a few weeks back... Somebody calling you about uh, discussing Luxembourg, right? 
Eh, it was sort of a matter of, well, there's not a whole lot you want to stop and see and do there. And I have to admit, you know, it is a very small country. But there are some good side trips. Well, tell me about it, because I feel, when people bring up Luxembourg, i got to say I feel a little bit nervous, because I've been there a couple of times, but it's never done anything for me, and I'm enthusiastic yeah. about other places. But uh, tell us, what's good about Luxembourg, and where would you side trip to from there? Well, I, I guess because I, I get to uh, travel with a, a family that's very steeped in uh, history, so we tend to go to a lot of historic things. And um, Bastogne is close right over the border in uh, Belgium, for those who really would like to, to get an idea as to the uh, Battle of the Bulge and the little village of uh, Bastogne. Okay, you know, now the Battle of the Bulge was uh, one of the, the last furious battles, right? Yes. And tell us about that. Well, it, of course, it was in a heavily uh, wooded area, the Ardennes, and um, you know, as you're driving through the countryside, you know, you'll see markers or you'll see different points of interest and in the village itself. You and know, you and how do they show it off from a, a teaching point of view? Are there museums? Are there little walking tours? Um, it's been several years since I was there. Um, you know, there's still places within the town where you can see where there was shelling or, you know, damage. And I think right. it seems to me there were still tanks. It's not quite as extensive as some of the places you would see maybe along Normandy. Because they've done some great work in um, sharing the history of both World War I and World War II in Europe. If, and uh, yes. anybody who's interested in that, it would really behoove them to do a little studying ahead of time and make sure they, they realize where the good museums are and where the good sites are. Because, yes. I mean, there's thousands of sites, and people who oh, fought yes. there would go back to those particular places. But if you're interested in, you know, in, in a general approach to World War I or World War II, mm-hmm. Boy, there's some great sites. Oh, there are. There's many, many, many things. And also American cemeteries. Uh, I know the American cemeteries are lovingly cared for and powerful experiences mm-hmm. for those of us who have an opportunity to drop by. Yes, especially um, around Memorial Day. Right. Because they're usually the expatriate communities and local people as well. That's a good so, idea. I hadn't thought about that. But if you're in Europe on Memorial Day, that would be a nice place to connect yeah. with, with our, our community. And another place that would, again, be close to Luxembourg City would be uh, the German town of Trier. Again, for those who are into uh, Roman history, there's quite a bit left of Roman ruins and things. That's right. They got, well, wasn't that Emperor Constantine's uh, base? He had a palace, a uh, basilica there. Yeah, you're probably, you probably know more about that than oh, I do. Trier is the I remember old... trudging around, you know, What's impressive to me is they've got this in beautifully preserved brick building, and it's as big as a church, and it, it's got the same design as a church, but on the altar is a big uh, throne where the uh, mm-hmm. emperor sat. Yes. And to think that 2,000 years ago, this was a, you know, a, a regional capital for the Roman Empire, and uh, you've got some uh, powerful Roman history right there in Trier, yeah. uh, not to mention a lot of other interesting sites. Well, I, I guess another thing that's kind of nice about some of these places, uh, they're easy to get around to. You know, you don't need a car or any kind of transportation. You can get out and walk around through town. and Isn't that great? See the local pubs. And, and I would bet there's hourly trains from Luxembourg City to over to, over to Trier. Yes. All right, Helen. So, well, well thank, thank you. Yeah. I enjoy the show. Thanks for your call and hope you call again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. The Greek countryside is packed with charm, and these days, even Athens has become a joy, transformed since the 2004 Olympics with spiffed-up museums, slick new public transport, and inviting pedestrian zones. An Insider's Guide to Greece is next as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're going to Greece. And I have with me a guide from the town of Delphi, which is up in the mountains, a couple hours north of Athens. And she's joined us to give us an insight into Greece. Penny Kolomvotsu. Hello. Thank you for being here, Penny. Thank you, too. Penny, you are a local guide in the town of Delphi, where many tourists go. How do you become uh, an official guide in Greece? There is a school for guides. It's for two and a half years, where they teach you history, lots of different things. So you then get the license and you are able to travel around the country with lots of different people and interpreting your own land history. Okay, so you are an official guide. Do you have a badge yes. that says, I'm an official guide? Yes. You must have to speak English first to do this. And and then now you have this uh, authority. And is your specialty Delphi or all of Greece? I think so. It's all of Greece, but I think it's Delphi. That's your hometown. Yeah. Now, we're going to talk about living today in Greece. And I think many people, when they go to Greece, they're too hung up on the ancient stuff. But first, I'm fascinated because you live in a very interesting corner of the world, Delphi. Let's talk about ancient Delphi. Delphi, like back with Apollo and Zeus and everybody. Why is Delphi so important? Mm. In Delphi, we've got the famous oracle. Um, that's, uh, it's an ancient site, very interesting. According to our myths, it was Zeus, the father of gods and mankind, who wanted to know where the center of the world was. So he left two eagles fly from the two opposite poles of the universe, and they met above Delphi. So that meant that was the center of the world. Yeah, but talking about the center, what they meant really is that Delphi represented uh, their ideas, values, um, an attitude towards life. So it's a cultural center, and culture does cover lots of different aspects of people's lives. So it's not like going there and just make questions about the future and there's some, someone in trance. <laughs> okay, because that's <laughs> what the, the tourists always hear, that this was a, there was a gas coming out of the earth and this is uh, centuries before Christ, right? What century is this? Uh, well, um, from the 8th century BC onwards. 800 years before but Christ. But it was much older. Yeah. And, and then they would have a priestess who would inhale this gas from the earth and it would intoxicate her and she would babble. <laughs> and then the priests would interpret that as wisdom from the gods and they would then tell people what the gods wanted us to hear. Exactly. Now, this was kind of an interesting um, game they had going on because people from all over the Greek world, which is most of the civilized Mediterranean world, were coming to Delphi to get wisdom from the gods, and they would actually be interviewed before they could get this wisdom, and the priests would then learn what was the economy, what were the troop strengths, what was the politics all over the Mediterranean world. So they really had a, a data bank there. And then they could ask their questions, and the priests then could actually give smart information as advice. Is that right? Yeah. And people would bring all sorts of wealth and gold and everything to pay for this information. Yeah. But there is one very, very important detail people forget. Before entering the temple, uh, in order to make the question, in front of the temple at the entrance, there were two things. Um, the ancient uh, philosophers, wise men, uh, they had made two statements. The first one stated, um, know thyself. And the second one stated, no excess, everything in moderation. Nothing in excess. Nothing in excess. Everything in moderation. Okay. So it's like you know the answer. You're only going to be influenced. And that's the nice thing about it because every answer given to people was like a riddle. It was a vague answer. Huh. So that way people should figure out themselves what the real answer is. So they had to interpret themselves. But they were happy with their visit and it was productive. Yeah, you know why? Because at the very end they had a dialogue. I mean, okay. one answer requires a second question and then you go on. Like counseling. You, yeah, exactly. It's really like counseling, ancient counseling. It's a center for psychotherapy, ago. I would say. Psychotherapy. Now, you mentioned nothing in excess. Is yeah. this the golden mean? Is that what? Of course. Tell me more about the uh, some examples of nothing in excess in ancient Greek culture. Um, a good example. We we do drink a lot alcohol, yeah, but we know how to drink it. So, for example, we don't get that drunk. Also in antiquity, they they used to mix wine with water. So it's like you know helping yourself uh, be happy. 
But on the other hand, you don't go into the other extreme. So be mature, keep your life in balance exactly, and so yeah. on. Another sort of psychotherapy. Yeah, that's a good example because in many other places I've seen people getting drunk and doing stupid things. Now, I understand uh, when we think of the Renaissance, we're thinking of a rebirth in Italy in the 1400s to the greatness of the ancient world, the classical Greek golden age in the, in the Roman Empire. And um, we think of a Renaissance genius as somebody who can do many, many things. And I think that goes back to ancient Greece. My understanding in the Olympics, uh, seven, 800 years before, Christ, they would not celebrate an athlete who was only a good runner and could do nothing else. A great athlete needed to be a musician and a poet and needed to be well-rounded. Um, it's complicated. Have you ever heard of the word Hebrews? Hebrews, no. Yeah, it's like you overdo it. I mean, uh -huh. even an athlete, even if uh, uh, he's a winner in the Olympic Games, he should not overdo it. Right. Uh, he won, he became a god for a few seconds, you know, feeling the victory, but this is it. Uh, Hebrews is something you don't want the gods to notice, hmm. so you don't overdo it. That's another nice thing that you must, you should not forget that you're a human being. So you need and to do... you do have a fate. You need yeah. to do other things. You can't just remember that you were the great runner or something. Yeah, I mean, you are, you can celebrate, but up to an extent... Now, when we're traveling in Greece today, of course, there's much more than the ancient sites. And I think a lot of people go crazy on something that's B.C. And I always say just because something's B.C. does not mean it's got to be seen. Be selective about what B.C. sites you want to see. And then look at other aspects of Greek. Greece is wonderful in, in many faceted history. And connect with the temporary uh, lifestyles. If somebody's traveling in the countryside of Greece, what are some good ways to, uh, to understand uh, the tempo of the daily life? What's some good ways to meet people? Uh, the best way is to, um, to mix with local people. To go out, to go for a coffee to a cafe neon where all these people sit down, discuss. And people always feel welcome there. I mean, they're going to ask you, where are you from? Um, how are you? Why are you here? How is your country like? Especially Very if you go to a people. town with no tourism. Yeah, and especially if you go out to, to do some shopping, like buy potatoes, tomatoes, feta cheese. Things like that. They are always very helpful, and when they see you, they feel so proud of themselves, and they try to do their best to make you feel welcome. And they're happy to communicate, to try to communicate. They even give things for free if they want. Do people speak English a lot in Greece? They do speak. Even if they don't, they make up words that sound English. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Show me how. Like, for example, uh, when one day I, there was an old lady, and she didn't know that potatoes actually do have the same name. And she was like, patatos, patatos. Okay. You want to buy patatos? So she figured yeah. it out. <laughs> yeah. When I'm traveling in Greece, it occurs to me it's one of the most touristed but least explored countries in Europe. It seems like at any given point, most of the tourists are in the same eight or ten places complaining about the crowds, and then the rest of the country is ignored by the tourists. That is if, correct. If yeah. you go into a little town with no hotels, you can stay in people's homes. Rooms to let. Rooms to let. That's what they call it now, yeah. not domatia. Domatia. That would be the Greek word. Yeah. But you'll see a sign actually that says rooms to let. Yes. And you'll be spending 20, 30 euros maybe. Exactly. For a double, maybe $30, yeah. and you're upstairs above the taverna. Yeah. It's a beautiful experience. And you go downstairs, you stay with a family, have something to eat. They always invite you. If they see you alone, for example, or going swimming and then coming back, they're going to tell you, please come sit down, have something to eat. I've really found that's true when I'm in Greece, more so than in, in most countries, I think. P you know, my house is your house, this sort of thing. They want to sit down and eat with you. A great way to connect with Greeks uh, when I'm traveling, as well as Turks, is to play backgammon. Mm, Do you like yeah. backgammon? Yeah, it's fun. Really? Do most Greeks play backgammon? Yeah. If a tourist goes into a coffee house and wants to have a game of backgammon, is, it, is he welcome to challenge somebody? Yes. Well, they don't usually do it, but of course they can ask someone to play If I with did, them. what would happen? Uh, they would probably sit down and play with you. Yeah, I think people would gather around and have a good time. Yeah. Tell me about eating in Greece. I mean, I have some good memories. The yogurt with honey is very good. Yeah, very. Souvlaki? Souvlaki. Have you had souvlaki in America? <laughs> Gyros or kebab, kebab most of the time. Yeah, the souvlaki in Greece is great. Since the Olympics, has Greece changed a lot? No, not really. So it's no. basically this, there was a big flash. Athens has some new infrastructure, but the countryside is the, the same old country. It does now. I mean, with the metro and people are friendly. No, they're trying a lot to, to develop things in, in Athens. Because in Athens. But also, Athens is the dominant city. I mean, yeah. how, many, how many people are in Athens? 
Uh, half uh, the population of the Greeks are in Athens. Half of all Greeks are yeah, in Athens. Yeah. So like 5 million out of yeah, 10 probably, million. Yeah. Something like this. Wow. We're with Penny from Delphi, and we're talking about Greece, and we've got some people on the line. Uh, and we'll go to our calls right now and see what we can uh, do with some of our travelers. we got Nick in California. And, Nick, you're going to Greece with your wife for a week. What's Correct. on your mind? Yeah, um, well, first of all, thank you for having me on your program. You um, love your books. We use them when we go to Europe. They're brilliant. Thank you. Um, we're going in September, and we're going to be there for about seven solid days on the ground. What month was that? September. Okay. And be on the 10th is when we'll arrive. Mm-hmm. And we're planning on doing Athens first. And so here are my, I have a, a couple questions, if you will. One, I'll just rattle them off. How much time would you spend in Athens out of the seven days? And then two, we're kind of looking for a place we can hunker down that has a beach. We're, we're not big beach goers, but we want, would like that. The quaint town, if you will. We're, we're not partiers. We're not big drinkers or anything. And we also want to be able to, you know, do like half-day trips to places and, and see things, historical things, museums, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I'm looking for is Bainak by the Sea. Bainak by the Sea. <laughs> now, there's, like a man, there's a man who's enjoying a great place in France, Bainak on the Dordogne River Valley, right? Yeah. So I hear you. Plan my vacation for me, would you? <laughs> okay. So, um, Penny... Uh, Nick here wants to go for seven days in Greece, see some of Athens, and then go somewhere where he can have a beach and history. What would you recommend? Um, I think that the most important thing is for him to find out what is it exactly that he wants to see. Right. Because we've got a variety of different things. Like, for example, in Athens, we've got so many museums, and I don't think he wants to see them all. So the first thing he should do is to decide what are the places he wants to visit and how much time he wants to spend there. Because, I mean, these are very important places, and, and once you enter, you need to spend some time. Just for the National Museum, you need something like two hours, I would yeah. say. So anyway, he has to, f- to see how much time he wants to spend in Athens. Then about the beach, yeah, so he wants a nice island, probably near Athens, so not that far away, not that crowded. I would recommend Dia. How do you spell that? Huh. Um, Dia, I would... There's a Greek letter, so we got a different problem here. Yeah. Zia. 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 And that, how many Zia. hours from uh, Athens is um, that? Would it's you say? not that far away. I would say something like three hours. Three hours. So Penny says Zia. You'll have to figure that one or out Kea. there, Rick. Kea. Try also Kea. It has got two names. Kea um, or Zia. K E A. T E A. Okay. Yeah. What do you think of. There is one place that I, I have been looking at. Of, I, I'm going to butcher it and I apologize. Nafplio? Now, that's exactly what I would have uh, recommended, yeah. Nafplio, and there's, you know, the funny thing about the Greek words in English is there's different ways to say them and spell them, so it's a little bit confusing. But I, from the average American that I know, would want to spend two or three days in Athens, maybe three nights and two days, just to do your sightseeing and get it out of your system. Right. And then go two hours south to Nafplion. And Nafplion, the town you're talking about, is a wonderful small town. It's got great beaches nearby. Mm-hmm. And from there, you could side trip and you could see Mycenae, which, remember, Mycenae was as mysterious to the ancient Greeks as uh, the Acropolis uh, is to us. It was okay. a thousand years before that. You could see Epidavros, which is the greatest theater from the ancient world with incredible acoustics. And Nafplion itself has all sorts of charm and, and great seafood and, and nice beaches. That would be a rather relaxing I think week, if it's all you have is a week, uh, and a nice balance for it sounds like what you're looking for. And is there one little hidden place that either of you know about that you would say, you know, here's this little gem to take your bride to, and, and not a lot of people know about it, but it's well worth it. A romantic little special place. I think, you know, Nafleon is no secret, but to me it's very romantic. Okay. It's a small town. It's got wonderful harborfront restaurants. Another very nice place or island nearby is Aegina. Aegina. This is a beautiful island. There's islands nearby. You know, I've uh, written a chapter on Athens that's not available for sale anywhere, but it's available free on our website. I was just there a couple of weeks ago, and I'm uh, very excited about this chapter, and I hope that you can take advantage of that. That would give you all of the eating, sleeping, sightseeing specifics on Athens. So, Nick, check that out at ricksteves.com. And then uh, I think for you, probably Napoleon and then uh, the island nearby, Aegina. Aegina, would be a good idea. Great. Hey, thanks a lot for your time, and keep up the great work. Thank you very much, Nick. Enjoy your trip in Greece. Thank you. We also have Nancy on the phone calling us from Tulsa. Do you have a question for us? 
Yes, um, we're planning to spend like three days in Athens, and then the rest of the time we're going to four of the Cyclades Islands. Cyclades. How do you pronounce this? Cyclades? Cyclades. Cyclades. Okay, we're all learning. So Cyclades Islands, the Cyclades Islands. Okay. Um, Mykonos. Right. Naxos. Yeah, Naxos. Delos and Santorini. Uh, And what was the third one there before Santorini? Delos. Delos, yeah, Delos. Those are all fine islands to visit. You know, I was going to make my own reservations and different hotels and ferries. Right. And then I've seen suggestions that says maybe you should get an agency to do all this for you. That way you will catch the ferries on time and so forth. What Mm. is your opinion on that? Is it easy to go from island to island uh, without a lot of fancy reservations and help? I think that if you're not under lots of uh, pressure and uh, you can uh, do it yourself. I mean, you go to the island, see how things are like. If you like it, you can stay there longer. Then again, don't forget the weather because these islands are pretty windy. So I would say that if you're not in a hurry and you want to enjoy yourself, have a good time, then just go with the flow. If you like it, stay longer, take the ferry, go to the next island, return. And Delos is the only place where you can't stay overnight. So right. Yeah, so yeah. I don't think you should worry too much. Delos is a side trip from Mykonos. Exactly. And that's a beautiful side trip. And uh, remember, Delos is very important. 500 years before Christ, this was the treasury of the Athenian League. It was the Fort Knox of the ancient world. Mm. Yeah. Now, Nancy, what month are you going? We are leaving, I think, around the 13th of May. Is that a good time to be going to Greece? It is a good time because these islands are usually crowded in summer, so like, for example, yeah. in August, July. So it is a good time. Hot enough for swimming? Um, yeah. So you won't have all the student crowds there, and you will have some good beach weather. I was just there a couple of weeks ago. I was very impressed by how well organized the ferry system was with the hydrofoils and the jet boats between the islands. And I don't think you should uh, let people scare you here. I, I, I'm pretty conservative about this, and I would say once you get to Athens, uh, you'll learn there about boat connections between the islands. My experience on the islands is when your boat arrives, there's people there with small hotels, guest houses, and bed and breakfasts, rooms to let that meet you when the boat comes, and they're trying to find business. And they have to scramble every day when the boat comes in. They're at the dock, and Penny's nodding her head, <laughs> trying to get business. Is that right, Penny? So you don't think I need to make reservations ahead of time, then? Well, it's like Penny said, if you want to go with the flow, um, right. you can't make reservations because you may want to stay longer here than there. A lot of Americans are more comfortable with reservations in advance, and that's a decision you have to make. If you want to sacrifice your mm-hmm. flexibility to know you got a room no problem, uh, but if you want to have a more of a free-flow tour, you really don't know how long you're going to want to stay in Mykonos as opposed to Santorini. I tell you, I flew into Santorini once in peak season. I arrived at midnight without a room reservation, and I, at the airport, in the middle of the night, there was like 20 people gathering around the plane trying to get me to come to their home uh, for bed and breakfast. So there's a huge supply and uh, plenty of opportunities to find good places to stay if you're on a budget when you travel in the Greek islands. Get a guidebook that covers the Greek islands. I don't write anything about the Greek islands. There's plenty of good guidebooks that way. And, uh, yes, remember, I have Lonely Planet that yeah, I've been looking at. I think Lonely Planet is excellent for the Greek islands. But also what I found very interesting is your graffiti wall. Yeah, the graffiti wall at ricksteves.com is a thriving community of travelers sharing a lot of information. That has really been helpful, too. Good. Well, thanks a lot, Nancy, and have a good time in Greece. Let us know how it goes. Thanks. Okay. More of your calls with Penny Kolombatsu on Greece as we continue on Travel with Rick Steves. Hallo, mein Name ist Jürgen Gobin. Ich reise mit Rick Steves. This was German for saying, my name is Jürgen Gobain. I am from Germany and I travel with Rick Steves. Mein Name ist Jürgen Gobin. Ich bin von Deutschland und ich reise mit Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and we're taking your calls today with Penny Kolombatsu, a tour guide friend of mine from Delphi in Greece. Give us a call at 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. We have an email from Shannon in Linwood, Washington, and she and her husband will visit Greece for three weeks, and they'd like to visit the mainland, and what routes and unusual sites would we suggest, best ways to get around, I would see Athens in, if I had three weeks, I'd see Athens in three days and four nights. Athens is much more charming now than it used to be. They've done great things to make it less traffic congested and less polluted. 
and they've fixed it up after the Olympics in a beautiful way. The museums are state-of-the-art now with lots of English explanations. Entire regions of Athens are traffic-free and a delight to wander around in on your own. So Athens has gone from one of my worst towns to a big city that I actually like. Shannon will be there in September. That's a beautiful time because you've got good weather and you've got less crowds. And then I would recommend... uh, I think I would pick up a car, Penny, if you had two weeks to explore the Greek countryside. I think so. And I would swing up. I would actually copy what we do with our tours, uh, Shannon. I would look on my website and see what we do and we have people on our groups for two weeks and just copy that and do it yourself with a car. From Athens, you would go up to Delphi and maybe you could visit Penny. She's a guide there. And then you would uh, head on south to Olympia and do the Peloponnesian Peninsula, the big peninsula on the south of Athens. And remember, when you're on the beach on the south of the Peloponnesian Peninsula, it feels like you're on an island. You don't need to be on an island to feel like you're on an island in Greece. The Peloponnesian coastline is excellent. You got wonderful sights, castles, caves, little side trips to islands, beautiful hikes, wonderful cuisine on the Peloponnesian Peninsula. We have another caller standing by from California. This is David. And uh, David, it sounds like you've got uh, an interest in mythology. Are you there? Yes, I am here. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yes, I went to Greece uh, several years ago, and before I went, I uh, read quite a bit about the place and in particular read a lot of Greek mythology and uh, I was wondering if you advise travelers who go to sort of prepare themselves for the experience of being in Greece and what it really means to be there. You mean uh, just developing an understanding of the mythology? Yes, and the mythology is married to the landscape in Greece. And if you, as you visit the various sites, uh, and some of them not even archaeological sites, if you if you know what happened back in mythological times, to me it just really adds a significance to the place. This sounds uh, like a very uh, smart way to approach Greece. Let's, Penny, what do you think about that? Yeah, uh, it's not uh, too many people who think that way, but I really do like um, your thoughts. Anyway, the thing is that um, some people have suggested that every single god had some special characteristics which should match the specific landscape. Like, for example, in Delphi, Apollo uh, is the god uh, of harmony, and usually his temples are found between mountains and uh, the sea. So the landscape does mean a lot to us, and uh, you can relate it to, to our history, to the temples, to the gods. So this is a very way, a good way to approach uh, our country. If I... Uh, might just bring your attention to one thing that I, one big difference that it really made uh, to me was that I had read so much about Thebes and the myth of Oedipus and Cadmos, and uh, I would otherwise never have gone there because most of the guidebooks sort of encouraged you to stay away from the place. But when I read all of the mythology and I went went to Greece, I found Thebes to be this remarkable place with. Hmm. A certain amount of archaeology, but I mean the the center of the city still resides on the hill where the old Cadmia, the castle, uh, was, and you can see the, its shape. And they have the archaeologists have located the seven gates of uh, Thebes, and so and you can uh, track them down. So it gives it the whole thing a lot more significance and. Uh, you might even visit places that you would never really consider without knowing a great deal more about Greece. Exactly. That's an amazing thing, again, that I, I think that's the most important thing in Greece. You have read so many things, you know so many things about it, but when you are there, you can follow every single thing, every single information you, you've learned, so you become part of it. So that's a really nice thing. Another thing about Thebes, since you like it so much, you do know that the prehistoric city is still buried underneath the modern town. Yes, <laughs> I've read a lot about that. And every time they tear down one house and start to build another one over the top of it, they, I guess they have to excavate the site before they'll let them build anything on it. Yeah, so you can imagine how much knowledge there is still, uh, there is still buried. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Thebes uh, Museum is really an interesting place to visit, too. There's just an awful lot of, of things in there, and so much of it. So much of the archaeological history matches up against the old ancient myths, too, of the city being burned in, oh, something like 1225 B.C. or so, and they found the ashes, and and there's some artifacts in the museum. So, David... Jewelry that could have been worn by Antigone or something like that, you know. 
So, David, just to kind of review this, your contention is that if the traveler understands the mythology of a place or a region, even if they're not going to ancient sites, they can better uh, appreciate and enjoy their visit to the contemporary scene? They can. Well, every place in, in Greece is ancient. And when you go there, you find all of these places. They just sort of pop out at you. And if you don't really, if you don't really know what the significance of them is, as it, uh, has been explained in, in mythology, it really still won't attach any, any importance to it. So put you not a, so much of an importance. Yeah, it really to puts it anyway. you at a puts you at a disadvantage to properly appreciate the place. Yeah, and when you go into a place like Thebes, you know the, there are quite a few bits of archaeology around the area, the greater Thebes area. There's been uh, some ruins uncovered outside of the Cadmia, and, and then, like Penny was saying, inside the hill where the Cadmia existed, uh, everything is still under the ground. Everything is there. And also, some of the hills around there is where Oedipus's sons were supposed to have been buried. So, mm. you know, all the, all the different areas start taking on a lot of significance. And if you just go visit Thebes just to visit the place, none of this just really pops out at you. You know, nope. it, it takes a little, um, a little work. The traveler has to do some work. Um, as you said, uh, you have to be a bit poetic, artistic. And this is, I think, what a traveler should do. Uh, should not be just a tourist, but a traveler. And a poet. Yes. Yeah, it's great and, and to be a poet, poet on the road. Where is Thebes? I don't even know where Thebes is. It's not far away from Athens, something like an hour far from Athens. Okay. And yeah, it's really easy to get to. It's just, uh, I think it's 45 minutes by bus. All right. And, um, so now, David, what do you mean by, I see in this note, you, you have a website that shows how to develop a personal mythology? Uh, when I came back... I wrote this huge volume that I call Oedipus on a Pale Horse, which is primarily written during the two and a half months that I spent there, but I wove some of my own family history with the ancient myths at all of the sites that I visited wow. so that the uh, even family history took on a new significance and sort of became a personal mythology that... Uh, sort of matched up with things in, in these places. And people can that, visit your handiwork there on the web? Yes, it's at uh, greek-myth.com, and uh, the entire travelogue is on there. I visited something like 23 different, 23 different sites, four days at each site. It's an That's unbelievable great. experience. you got a pretty good website there, greek-myth.com. Hey, David, thank you very much for your uh, fascinating insight to traveling in Greece. Well, thank you very much for having me. Happy travels. All right, bye-bye. When we're traveling in Greece, a lot of Americans find themselves saying, it's all Greek to me. Don't you hear that? It's all Greek yeah. to me. We have that in our language, actually. It just means, I don't get it. Greek is tough because you've got to know the letters, different letters. And I think one of the very important things to do right off the bat is learn those letters. Yeah. Uh, because then you can tell what the street says. Yes. And uh, a few polite words are a good idea. Teach me just the most important couple of words in Greek. What is uh, very good? Poli. Poli. Kalo. Poli kalo. Poli kalo. And what do you do? You emphasize one of the syllables? I would say, since Americans and English-speaking people have got an accent, try try to speak Greek slowly with no accent. That's a good tip. Speak Greek slowly with no accent. Poli kalo. Very That's good. Better. Yeah. Okay. And if I want to say thank you. Ευχαριστώ. Oh, that's tricky. Ευχαριστώ. Ευχαριστώ. That's Ευχαριστώ. pretty good. Ευχαριστώ. Ευχαριστώ. And hello? Yasu. Yasu, that's easy. Yeah. Hello, Yasu. And uh, Ευχαριστώ. Very nice. Fascinating, Penny. Traveling in Greece, developing a, an appreciation for the contemporary world, uh, and at the same time, uh, a respect and a, a little background on the ancient sites. Thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. Hope to see you in Delphi. <laughs> Hope to see you too. <laughs> Κάποιος πυρανόνιμα μου είπε πως μαζί σου πια δεν είναι όλα ροδίνα Σ' ένα τηλεφώνημα κάποιος πυρανόνιμα
να μου πει πω βαράδι εχθέ. Τρει φορέ το μαρανίκη. You don't have to bust your budget to enjoy rich and vivid experiences with fascinating people and cultures from around the world. That's why we're here. Whether you're preparing for an adventure overseas or you just want to dream about it, we're glad you can join us as we travel with Rick Steves. We got Marvin on the phone from Naperville in Illinois. Thanks for your call. I wanted to uh, make a couple of comments. Uh, we've had a couple of good ex- experiences with having exchange students in our house, anywhere from a month to uh, a full school year. And we have been to Europe to, to visit three of the students uh, and their families. And we've had their families show us around in uh, areas. Uh, you get to see things a normal tourist doesn't see. You get to experience some life and, and really get a, a better understanding of the, of the culture of, uh, of, different, of different countries by, by doing that. Fascinating. What a very clever way to get close to the cultures. Uh, yes. The, the last trip we did was uh, a couple of years ago. We had a, we had a, a student from Russia. So we spent uh, two and a half weeks with she and her family, and uh, she they lived near Moscow, and we went to spend about a week in Moscow, and then uh, overnight train to St. Petersburg and uh, some of the small towns in the Golden Ring around Moscow, and it was it was a unique thing that would have been probably a little difficult for us to do without uh, without traveling with the locals. Oh, that would give you a very very. Uh critical inside track for, for getting outside of Moscow. I mean, most people would stay in some overpriced interest hotel, I would think, by the Kremlin yes. and see all the, the obvious things, but you actually stayed in a home? We, we, stayed, in a, we stayed in an apartment that her, that her father uses in the city, and then we were with our, our, uh, our student and her mom most of the time, and they would pick us up, or oh. they would send us on the, uh, on the subway, so we eventually they got to where they could trust us where we could get around on the subway. And uh, just just toured the sites, and they set up tours for us, and took us themselves. And you know, reading Cyrillic is not the easiest thing in the world for uh, for an American to do. No, one thing I make a point to when I get to Russia is spend a couple, spend an hour uh, as you're approaching, trying to get a just a good hang on on the uh, just simply the alphabet. Otherwise, yes. you know, because a lot of times if you know the letters, you know what the word is. Uh, yes. I always thought, what is pectopa? Pectopa. But when you know R is. P is R and C is S, all of a sudden Pectopa is kind of obviously restaurant, you see. Mm-hmm. But I just thought they serve food in places called Pectopas. No, I didn't know my Cyrillic. <laughs> you know, you're just, my wife, had, we had the same experience where we ask our, our Russian, we, we call her our daughter, hey, what's a Pectopa? And then she just howls laughing when she <laughs> explains the restaurant to us. So there is a, you're very steep on the learning curve there with the Cyrillic when you're just learning the letters and it helps hugely. Then you can know what metro stop you're getting on. And Moscow's yes. subway is incredible, isn't it? It really is. They're they're very very fast. They run every minute, one two three minutes, and uh, it's really the way to get around in. And that's where that's how everybody gets around. Oh, so. it's, it's a fire hose of a people mover, if you ask me. Built by um, Stalin's cheap labor, you know. So he yes. could he could just he said build this exactly like that, and bam, it was done. But again, that's the way to get around in town. The streets are crowded uh, most of the time, and uh, when we could take the subway, we did. Now, Marvin, you have you said you visited uh, th- three of your students. You visited their homes in Europe, then. First time we hosted a uh, a teacher for a month from Spain, so we went to see she and her mother in Valencia, okay, and uh, for about four or five days, and they showed us around Valencia, hmm. and then our first full time high school student was from Hungary. He and his family uh, showed us around uh, Hungary uh, in uh, in two thousand and two thousand and one. So uh, okay. the whole family packed us up. They basically treated us like kings, and they were trying to basically thank us for taking care of their son for. A full year. You know, I find that people, it's sort of, um, it's sort of gracious to receive people's hospitality when you're traveling. They yes. really are thrilled to have you as a guest and show you around, especially if you've hosted them in America. Yes, they wanted to pay us back for taking care of them, and they were, they were anxious to show off the, the nice things about their country, too. And uh, one of the interesting things about Hungary is that you go into a museum or a castle or something, there's a price for a foreigner and a price for uh, a native Hungarian. Of course, with uh, with him or his father buying tickets, we went in as native Hungarians, which was about ten percent of the cost in a lot of cases. Exactly, that's a very good budget trick. Hey, Marvin, now you hosted. The, let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of hosting these people at home. Are, are you hosting students to help a community college or something like this? Uh, we 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 set up. We went through an organization where where we know the the local coordinator, and the uh, we've had three full time high school students through this organization. 
and uh, what what the is there's a there's a group of uh, about uh, 20 kids that are, that are here each year uh, that this organization brings, and they are they're in various high schools around this area. And do they pay you for your expenses? No. This, okay. In so this particular one, they do not. It's, it's entirely uh, volunteer. It's up to us. They yeah. they. Uh, uh, we provide the uh, student with uh, with a home, with a house, place to live, a place to study, food, and all that stuff. And being travelers that we are, if we're taking a trip, we take the student with us. It's just it's just automatic. Oh, we yeah. want to show them our country too. Now, Marvin, given the fact that you're donating your time and your expenses and so on, do you get some say in what culture you would like your student to be from? Do you have any selection there? We we pick the student in this particular organization. We see their application to uh, to be an exchange student. Uh, we read what they write, uh, see what their interests are, um, huh. see what their their personal experiences are, and that um, helps you get a better match. Yeah, I mean the the, the boy from Hungary. We uh, the, he said he wanted to learn American football and American baseball. Well, we're big sports fans, so perfect. It seemed like just an just an automatic. How can people learn more about this if they wanted to do that in their community? Um, there are organizations uh, that are that operate nationwide. If you want me to give a couple of them to you. The one that we that we used was an outfit called Flex, and they bring kids from mainly from the former Soviet Union. And there's organizations called Educational Foundation, and the Rotary Club has uh, a big exchange program yeah, also. Rotary Club's big into that, so there's there's some good avenues for people to go. My sister does this, and she's done it for years uh, for the local community college. There's a lot of students from all over the world, and the community colleges love to bring that diversity in. And my sister does it, uh, and and they actually pay a small amount of money to cover her uh, food and and uh, room expenses. You know, so she actually does that to help pay the rent. Okay. Well, that's good if you can do that. There are some organizations that do that, and I think a couple of times for the short stays, we've had a small amount that we've gotten, but that's really mm-hmm. not... Uh, we get we get much more from hosting the kids oh, yeah. than what oh, that's you know, a, a small you amount know, of money would be. It's like traveling without leaving home. you got it's, people it's, coming it's into your really house. Fun. Maybe we've been lucky because the... the Particularly the three full-time high school students we have have been great kids. Well, I've never heard anybody having had a bad experience uh, opening up their house to students like this. I think uh, what, it's just a, a great sort of cultural exchange. Marvin, thank you so much for your insight. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Good talking to you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.